Hi, James. Ben, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Another bat signal uh, right. from, from from. I was gonna say your side of the pond, but I, you're still on my side of the pond. So I guess uh, your side of the street, something yeah. along those lines. Exactly. Um, starting to settle into life in Singapore. I'm gradually uh, adjusting to maybe San Francisco levels of humidity when the fog was in, but um, certainly no, consistently way more. <laughs> no, no. There's there is there's no humidity like Singaporean type humidity. Oh. Uh, maybe in Miami in the summer, like, but, but yeah. Does when the fog comes in? Actually, I never tested this. When the fog comes in, does that count as uh, like high levels of humidity? Because there definitely been nights walking around San Francisco where it feels like I'm, I'm in a cloud. But even if even if the humidity is up, it's definitely nowhere near as hot there. Like the humidity plus the heat has taken some adjustment, but I'm slowly getting there. Yeah, well, it's interesting because the humidity is actually the worst part of humidity is when it's cold, and that's which people in San Francisco get that right, mm. where it's it's just it's a like chill. an air conditioner, yeah. yeah, it just cuts through like your clothes. You're just cold, and you look at the the, the thermometer, and it's like 65 degrees. It's like why am I so cold? It's because that's actually humidity working the opposite direction, and so that happens with winters here, where winters here are actually kind of miserable because it's humid and there's mm. it's ch- there's just this chill and you look at the the temperatures like why am i why, why, why like why am i so cold that that's why so you you missed most of that you're gonna get just the heat which is absolutely brutal but you know whatever you you adjust you definitely get used to it i do and the other nice thing about being here i don't think i've been in a city where there are so many swimming pools there's literally like a swimming pool in every condo and as someone who loves to swim that part i'm absolutely relishing and swimming when it's hot and humid is it's really nice it's amazing there's nothing that feels better than oh yeah though okay now i'm going down a rabbit hole before we even begin this is the first (laughs) place i've lived where the problem is because it gets so hot, the swimming pools actually go above Olympic pool temperature. And so I train, at, I found a squad here and I train at night. And there are nights where it's this, it's the first place I've lived where it's like, oh my You're God. They, in the pool. Yeah, they need to, well, you always sweat in the pool, but it feels like they need to cool the pool as opposed to heat right. the pool. You yep. know, someone who's been living in San Francisco and wherever, it's like, there's a very novel concept to me. Yep. Yep. No, it's true. We are we, we're fortunate to have a, a pool at our at our building as well, and it's funny because it's in the shade, mm. like it just so it, it's it's sucks a lot of the year because it's like like man, it's not getting warm, it's not heated mm. at all. But in the summer, it's like oh, thank goodness it's in the shade because you'd just be baking otherwise. Right. Well, that's when you'd use it the most, so it's probably that that probably works out all right. It does work out. It does work out. Anyhow, uh, quite the digression, but you know it what, was. James. We can do what we want <laughs> because that we is, are sovereign podcasters. That is absolutely right. Part of the reason the bat signal went up this time is because it felt like this topic the, or, or the topic that I wanted to talk to you about today, which you wrote about, was um, actually pretty closely related to what we talked about last time. And obviously, we've... we've Wait, I can't remember what we talked about last time. Murdoch. Murdoch and those. Oh, that's right. Media the, the, the biggest bat signal ever. Yes, you yeah. were you were you were fired up. Well, it, and I, I did because this was. A, it feels like this was a case of one of these things that I really hate, which is incumbents using market power and resources to entrench their position, and um, it, 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 like like those laws are resulting in Murdoch getting all this money from uh from Facebook and Google um. 
but it doesn't do a lot to uh, help help the little the little guys. Like, and that's what's really interesting. Um, well, oh, by the way, can I, can I dump on Facebook for a moment? Uh, how uh, have I ever said no to you <laughs> with a question? It's like funny because Facebook, you you were kind of praising Facebook last time and saying, yeah. "Yeah, they're standing up for the right thing," and then they turned around and. They, they they basically did the same thing that Google did. They were just smarter about it because Google mm. kind of got like an implicit guarantee. We're not going to hold you to this law as long as you cut a deal with Rupert. And Facebook's like, no, you change the law first. That give, make sure we can always exit if we want to. Mm. And then we will cut a deal with Rupert. And then they did. And then they paid Murdoch. And then News Corp puts out a press release saying, you know, it's so great. Thank you to the Australian government, blah, blah, blah. And Facebook's business is left alone. They don't have to make any changes. They just get to shuffle money to 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 the, the big mm. players. And so it was just as unprincipled as Google. It was just sort of like they were much smarter about it. <laughs> and, and they actually like applied leverage to get changes in the law. Almost more unprincipled. I feel, I feel like Google really felt like it didn't have a choice. Like Facebook had a more leverage in this situation because. Yeah, because Google, is, Google, like Google without news is, is, is definitely yeah, weird. Like, Whereas Facebook you, without you, news, no problem. Yeah, right. And so it, it's almost more unprincipled. And I guess that's been my, um, my qualm with them. All along, anyhow, Rupert, uh, Rupert Murdoch, Australia, and uh, and yes, yeah, the sovereign, the sovereign podcaster. Well, it's interesting, right? Because Murdoch is those laws, and and you think about the the traditional media and publishing industry. Murdoch and those laws is like working on the revenue side of the equation. But I think what's interesting about Substack and why I wanted to talk to you about it is because Substack poses a problem on the cost side of the equation for uh, these media companies because they have been beneficiaries of having big names with big followings. And traditionally, uh, before the internet came along, traditionally, if you wanted to get into the into the media industry or publishing or be a journalist or a writer or an analyst, traditionally, you needed a platform like that. And it was this kind of symbiotic relationship where the platform would help you to blossom as a writer and to get distribution and to find an audience and find fans. And in return, uh, the, 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 the platform, so to speak, like the New York Times or whatever it might be, would probably get to employ you at well below market rates because you didn't really have any alternative but to, to rely on their distribution channels to find your audience. The cool thing about Substack is like it's giving those writers an opportunity to do what what you you've effectively done with Stratechery, but you, you're like a you've got technical chops. You built it. You kind of patched it all together yourself. Most writers don't have that. It's just you go to their website, you sign up, and you start to get people to follow you and build a subscription business around it, just like you've you've built with Stratechery. And like all of a sudden, you don't need the New York Times anymore. You can go direct to your customers, and like that's a phenomenal innovation. Um, but it's going to give the traditional publishers, publishers a hell of a lot of problem because now not only are they contending with a problem on their revenue side, they're going to be contending with a problem on their cost side as well. Right, because Substack is basically making popular writers aware of what their their actual value is. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think that that's that that is a it's a big problem. It is a big problem for lots of reasons. I mean. It's interesting because uh, there's I think there's two ways to look at 
this sort of sovereign writer idea that mm. that I wrote about this week. One is the folks that are already well known, and you know we can have all debate about to what extent were you know I think someone like Matt Iglesias it mm-hmm. deserves more credit because he started out as a blogger and like he helped start Vox, and so I think like to say he built his audience on his own that's mm. right right like he he mm-hmm. he did he did do the work. Some other writer that 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 maybe only became well-known because they were writing for a big publication. That's sort of like a different case where, okay, yeah, you're well-known now and you're a popular writer, but you kind of owe it to to the publication that sort of brought you to prominence in the first place. And to your point, I think past a certain generation, you know, maybe anyone older than like me, like me and Matt are about the same age or the three of us, maybe older than that, almost all of them were kind of like, they. it was kind of a, good deal all around right i mean they would have never gotten the the awareness or reach or distribution without Mm. their publication and in return the publication you know obviously benefited from from their popularity and being interesting and it was sort of a a, an even exchange but the internet just sort of changes that completely it's taken a, a while for it to catch up um i mean like the the prospect of this happening um the prospect of this happening was, I guess, possible from the very get-go. And I guess Matt and folks like Andrew Sullivan were early examples of how to do it. But I think, honestly, your like, Stratechery, again, was almost like a pioneer in this regard in terms of like it's not just a free newsletter that you send out to people and you get an audience and whatever, and it can be challenging to monetize, uh, or you're trying to do the old way of uh, advertising. It, it's like okay, we can actually get enough people around the world to like pay five or ten bucks a month or whatever it might be. And um, again, you had to be pretty sophisticated from a technical perspective to set up what you did. But the idea now that you just go to a website and sign up, it really feels like the floodgates are starting to open in terms of like the number of writers who are going down this path. Well, well, that's and I think this is where I would distinguish myself because. Mm. Something that's worth keeping in mind, I mean, not to like toot my own horn, but I started Stratechery with like 386 followers on Twitter or something like that, Mm. right? And and it's funny because people now lump me in with like the Andrew Sullivan's or the Matt McGraces of the world, someone with a big following, and of course, it's successful. Whereas I would like to think, again, this is, you know, I'm talking about myself in the best possible light. Mm. So we just got on our high horse about, uh, you know, self-interest and looking at things in your own perspective. So with all that said, with that very large caveat, that... Stratechery is a demonstration of the best promise of this model, which is that you get publications and writers that would have never emerged otherwise, right? I actually went around and I I wanted to – I asked companies or publications if I could write for them. And and but the problem was I I needed to make money and of course someone would take me for free and no one wanted to give me a job and this was even after I'd already started Stratechery it was v- getting very well known had a lot of traction but I I didn't you know I, I was <laughs> honestly doubtful that I could I thought it would take years to get to a level where I could do sort of the subscription thing and mm. so I w- I was like scrounging around seeing if I could get get other opportunities because I was so burnt out because I was working a full time job and I was trying to do Stratechery and I'm like I need to find a someone that will pay me for my writing and none of them would nobody wow. was interested and and so there and so I did obviously I launched anyway and I thought I had a you know job lined up a consulting job in the meantime fell through so I was like purely dependent on subscribers and it was 
terrifying and I wasn't sleeping and I'm like, what am I going to tell my wife that I gave up this job, you know, a six figure job. And, you know, I have to like, and now I'm making like, you know, $10,000 and uh, a year. And, <laughs> but, but it, it worked. It, obviously it worked. And, you know, I feel very fortunate. It, 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 it far exceeded my expectations. Like I only ever wanted to get a thousand subscribers and, you know, basically get back to a hundred thousand dollars a year. And, you know, and, and doing what I love like that to me, that was an amazing outcome. I could make a good living and do what mm-hmm. I loved. And obviously it ended up being way more than, than that, way more than I expected. I never, I, I, you know, I'm doing well financially. I didn't expect that. It was sort of out of the blue, but what's powerful about this and what I hope is remembered and preserved. And I think Substack is so great in this regard and that it's so mm. easy to get started is the potential of this is that there, there's way more writers out there that never mm. had access that never had an opportunity i mean you talk about the media business it's so hilarious to get lectured to by the media about access and like the pipeline and all this stuff this is a business where the way to get into high-end media is you internship for years for free mm. like that's the way in and guess who can afford to do that Mm-hmm. People whose parents are rich, people who have the networks because they they go to an Ivy League school, like the, the the media business is hilariously lacking in diversity, particularly in people's background, because the very economic structures of it mean only the people who are wealth can 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 do it right. right? And and, and the, the fact that anyone can walk up to a Substack from anywhere and they don't have to pay a dime. Right, we can get into the ten percent later, but that ten percent, by definition, only comes when you're actually making money. You can mm-hmm. start out for free with just a sign up. Like th- there's so many more voices, so many more perspectives. You want real diversity. Substack is going to drive way, way, way more diversity than the the elite media ever did or ever will. That story of how you started out and like that feeling, it, it's. That, that that necessity is the mother of invention, and it's so like it's. I mean, it's it's almost kind of funny now. This idea. Well, it's funny. Well, the funny thing is, they talk about Stratechery as being a newsletter, which right. um, which I dislike because I think Stratechery is a website. It's a publication that you can choose to receive in a newsletter. Right. But it's also <laughs> the funny thing about it is, I backed into the news the newsletter bit. Right. When I launched the four pay model, it was all website centric. So if you went to the, it was so bad. I'm almost embarrassed to talk about it. If you went to Stratechery and you were not a subscriber. You would just see the free articles, but if you were a subscriber, you would get a much richer experience with a bunch mm. of extra content. And it was it was such a mess. It, like, it, I was way over my skis as far as development Yo. goes. It was all website enter. No, so I I launched on a Thursday, and first off, I couldn't accept payments for twenty four hours. So I had an SL error because I didn't change a particular URL when I switched from the <laughs> testing site to the regular site, and it was awful. And I I I stayed up all night long trying to fix it and i'm on twitter saying sorry blah, blah. it was it was terrible and then i actually was signed up i was signed up for a half marathon on that saturday oh, no. and i had so i hadn't slept for like 72 hours i tried to run a half marathon i died halfway through i had to walk the last six miles it was awful oh, boy <laughs> and and oh, and i just knew it wasn't right i had mm. screwed up i had gotten it wrong and i went over the weekend i tore it all out i went back to the old old website the old theme and I'm like, I'm just going to email you. If you subscribe, I will send you additional content. 
and the website experience will be the same for everybody. Like this, this mm-hmm. thing's way too muddled. It's super hostile if you weren't a subscriber. This sort of thing, and I would just email you the, the stuff you paid for. And, and now I've noticed the newsletter guy. Like it was a total act. It was. It was. I'd like to think the the, the generous way. Sorry, I've got a rambling here. But the generous way to think about this mm-hmm. is that I demonstrated real flexibility and not being walked into my position. But the, <laughs> the reality is, is like, like I I got lucky and. Uh, <laughs> And and now I'm the newsletter guy. So there you go. I mean, it's not just you got lucky; it's you put yourself out there, and you also realize that you made a mistake. Like I, I feel well, and like, I had no choice because I quit yeah, my job. Like right. I, 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 like I, I had to make this work. Innovation, I feel like, is so often born from constraints like this, and and like, oh, I tried it and I made a mistake, and now I'm just gonna try something else. And hear these stories so many times, and. It's funny, oftentimes these origin stories, people tend to whitewash them a little bit in terms of uh, making it all sound way more preordained and I had it all figured out from the start than it really is. And I I appreciate the rawness of what it is you just described. I I did have the subscription model in mind from the beginning. Like that's Mm. the that's the part where I can really hang my hat on and say, Yeah, I started Trajectory knowing it was gonna be subscription driven. And, you know, I, I limited myself to just pose because I wanted to think – I always had in mind that if you paid, you would get more. I wanted to have the – and that was part of the reason why the initial design was so screwed up was because the model I wanted was you pay and get more. I never wanted to feel like I was taking stuff away, right? Mm-hmm. And then you felt like, oh, this pay, this sucks. He went, he went mm-hmm. behind a paywall, right? Because I thought that was the mistake that Andrew Sullivan made because he was actually the first one to do this. But – he had this feverish posting schedule in part that was economically driven because he was ad supported. Right. And so you need more posting, get more people on there, et cetera, et cetera. And when he went with the, with the subscription model, it was like a, the payoff is way too leaky. I think you had to view more than 20 items, but then he's like still posting like a crazy, like a crazy person. And then you had this very bad paywall, but it also felt punitive. It's like, oh, I used to be able to go to the site for free, and now I'm hitting this paywall. And I'm mm. like, that was a mistake. You needed to start out with core content that's mm. always free, and then you pay to get more. And it just, it, it, it's a dip. And even if you go to Strikery today, Strikery has to be the least aggressive upsell ever, right? You're, you're never, there's no boxes that pop up to put in your address. There's nothing mm. there. You can go, you could reach Strikery for years and not even know I sell anything. So, mm. what, which is probably bad. <laughs> so like, I might take it too much to, a, to an extreme, but the, my thinking is if you start really like it and you start clicking around and you search for something, you see that daily update is a headline you catch, then you hit the paywall, but you're mm. hitting the paywall in a mental state where you're, of, I, want you're I want this, right? I clicked on this. Oh, there's a paywall here. Well, I mean, and it's it's so different versus it's right in your face. Yeah. It's like here, here's a pop up. You you should subscribe to this. Yeah. And I actually this one of the things I really dislike about Substack is they have by default a put in your email address and that's like well, let me read it first. I would if I was a writer on Substack, I'd be so mad about that because mm. I want people to read my stuff. I want it to have a broad impact. Like and you mm. and if they if they want more. I will give them more, but I'm not going to shove it in your face because that's yeah. that detracts from the broader, the broader thing. Sorry, I'm I'm totally rambling on and on. No, 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 but, no, no, no. It's 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 really interesting and perhaps touched on one of the things that's I do. I write much less frequently than you, but I post it online on Medium, and I've thought about doing Substack. But what you just touched on is exactly one of the things that's caused me to pause. But I, I want to take this in a slightly different direction, which is. 
one of the things I love about the model is exactly what you said, is it makes it from a technical and business model perspective, trivially easy for people to start out and um, and and just start writing and, and to potentially, if they're good, they'll be able to build an audience, they'll be able to make a living out of it. And like you said, there are so many more voices out there that are that are otherwise that would otherwise not exist that wouldn't make it through all the gatekeepers hurdles that you described as well but i think there's also another really interesting dynamic which is uh for the established writers in the established publications or people that have had a follow that already have a following uh, like uh, for whatever reason they decide to leave and there are a, a, there are a few of those reasons one is for some reason they're forced out or another is they're starting to realize the value of what it is that they do whereas everyone's traditionally thought with few exceptions writers were poorly paid now people are starting to realize actually writing my writing you can actually make quite a bit of money writing and they're starting to abandon ship and like this side of the equation i feel like is also is is super interesting to explore yeah, sorry, I took us on a massive detour. Uh, the, to your point, you said at the beginning that what's facing publications was, has always been a revenue problem for many years, and the Rupert Murdoch and Facebook and Google stuff was about that part mm. of it. But you noted like there's also like a cost problem, and I think yeah, th- that's right, right? And that's why I'm like, it's actually not me because I didn't work for a big paper. I started mm. from scratch. That's the good part of Substack. The I don't like no adjective. It's almost not even a a, a, a normative statement. Yeah, it, right. The reality of Substack on the other side is this fact, and it's interesting because I think you can see clear downsides. Right, where publications, if you go back to the revenue idea, the problem for publications from a revenue perspective is that advertising was bundled with editorial. And the internet unbundled that, right? And so they only had editorial. They didn't have advertising. And like, oh, we don't have editorial. What are we going to do? Well, we can extract money from Google and Facebook like Rupert Murdoch mm-hmm. did. We can do a subscription like the New York Times has done. Mm-hmm. And and we can figure out a way to sort of monetize that directly. What I think you're driving at is that Substack is now unbundling mm-hmm. the stars from the grunts, for lack of a better word. And – I say that in a uh, that sounds <laughs> that sounds bad because the problem is that it's really separating sort of the the pundits from the reporters, and that's very worrisome. Like this is an area where I think it actually that's why I don't want to say Subex is good or bad. It just is because you think about a newspaper. The problem with news, and we've said this again and again and again, is that the moment news is published, its economic value is zero. Because it can be duplicated endlessly. It's just an, it's it's news that's in the air. Like uh, you know this thing that happened. It's a fact that is now exposed to the world, and that's really important. It's it's a thing where it's priceless but worthless, right? Mm-hmm. And the way that one vision that it works in like the New York Times, I think, is again the, the leading example of how this might work out in a positive way. Is they can fund all the worldwide reporting. They can fund bureaus all over the world. They can fund thousands and thousands of journalists. Because they're selling a bundle of everything and they can have the stars that drive a lot of traffic, the, the, the opinion columns that people have to read, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that's it, it's a bundle. It's a bundle of facts that become worthless 
with opinions that are unique and differentiated and you feel the need to get access to and you put that all together in one price and the, the model sort of works and Substack mm. is pulling that pulling that apart. Yes, this notion that one side is subsidizing the other side. Well, if you're if you're one of these differentiated opinion writers and you begin to realize that what you're writing people will um people will pay a lot and you will earn a lot more and yeah there's more risk associated with it but the upside is tremendously greater so interesting like again one of the things i think i've learned from you is looking at things from the perspective of individual incentives and what this has created has been a funnel for the individual incentives of the superstars to like you know what like this has been fun and i appreciate you helping me build a platform but at this point, the thing that's most rational for me to do is to peace out and like jump on this, go direct to my audience, and I don't need to subsidize the news. I'm just going to put a whole bunch more money in my pocket and, and not have to worry about all the overhead involved of being inside of one of these organizations anymore. Yep. I mean, to put, to put, a, to put sort of a, a dollar figure on it, I mean, because uh, Matt Iglesias uh, sort of shared his numbers it was very helpful because in the substack leaderboard for politics he's right next to andrew sullivan Mm. and so we can we can we know sort of like the minimum amount that's that sullivan is making which is uh like 900 or uh, nearly one million dollars i had it's not in front of me it's like 900 some thousand dollars and it was reported by ben smith when he was working for new york magazine he was making about two hundred thousand dollars which means like like he's literally changing nothing he was writing once a week for New York Magazine plus hmm. occasional feature articles, and now he's writing once a week for his own Substack. I, he's actually not doing feature articles; he's actually doing less work than he was before, and he's making eight hundred thousand dollars, eight hundred thousand more dollars. It's crazy. Like the the incentives become very clear, and once more people realize that that model is a thing, the the pull, the pull. Like I I feel like it's still been a trickle. And in fact, sometimes it's not even a trickle because of the incentives of the writers realizing they can make so much more. Sometimes it's actually like a push for whatever reason. Like uh, Like sometimes, yeah, exactly. Like sometimes these people who are who are brilliant, oftentimes will will push into territory that is controversial. And there's, I mean, like the, the blanket term is is like cancel culture, but like there's there's outcry and like. Uh, people will come to these organizations and say you can't you can't say that that's just not acceptable or, or whatever it might be and these organizations are in part based on their reputation but in part also based on uh the, the people who work inside yeah, of they're them. made up of people yeah yeah like they're sensitive to that and then these these superstars get pushed out and once upon a time if you didn't have access to something like a substack you got pushed out and you were out in the wilderness because, you know, you got fired from this magazine or whatever it might be. Yeah. And then you're blacklisted, right? No one else yeah. can hire you. Or, or it's going to be some like a wild out there publication that's designed to like shock or something. It's something yeah, you, you end up on like, yeah, you end up on like some like right wing website, right? And then, right. Then, yeah, you've seen, and, and, you've, you see this happen to people. Yeah. You're out in the wilderness. And now, though, um, it, 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 I think, I think what's happening with Substack and what it's proving out is like, you're actually th- th- there's actually a, there's a s- yeah and there's a silent majority of people that aren't participating in like you can't say that or 
Um, or maybe maybe they don't agree with what's being said, but they're okay with people courting controversial ideas. Like there's value in doing that and they're willing to support it. And so these writers end up getting pushed out and they end up in a world where they're better off as a result. So it's interesting because if you play this out, so what you're what you're sort of arguing is okay, the, the opportunity has always existed, but mm. Substack was there and it's interesting, like it had if Solvin was never pushed out or if uh, I don't know what the circumstances, I mean, the, the whole Glenn Greenwald thing has been weird uh-huh. and, and, and Matt Tybee or whatever, or right. I mean, I'm not sure what happened with the Glacius and Vox over the summer. It was clearly uh, some awkwardness to say the least, mm-hmm. uh, but maybe it never happens. But now that it happened and we're finding out how much money they make, now it's going to like pull out like th- there may be a lot of stars who have never even been aware of this opportunity, right. but it's like it was like the organizations kind of hurt themselves double. First, they hurt themselves by pushing out folks that clearly drove a lot of economic value. That's yep. that's injury number one. But number two, they created poster children for Substack, right. which is going to pull out their stars that they want to keep because their stars, this is where the individual incentives comes in. So maybe the incentives for Sullivan at all were just, they had nowhere else to go. Right. But the incentive for the next wave is going to be, holy crap, Andrew Sullivan's making a lot of money. Yeah. It's funny. In some sense, they kind of crack their own dam by pushing these people out. And it's also, it's, I mean, in some sense, from a strictly economic sense, these these decisions to push these writers out, like again, the 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 once you understand the economics at play, the underlying quid pro quo was like we'll help build you up, like as a great writer, and you can't you can't. It's not the platform's not enough. Just being in one of these organizations is not enough to get a following and people to love your work. But at least in the previous world where there wasn't the internet, it was it was necessary to have one of these platforms or you'd never get the reach. And it felt like the kind of quid pro quo was like, we'll give you a platform such that you can build your fans. And so we'll subsidize you at the start. But once more towards the terminal end of your career, you're subsidizing us back. That's right. That's right. It's like the music, the the music right. model, right? Yeah, Where exactly, we'll we'll give you money to get started and record your first album and market you and get you into radio stations, and then down the road when you're selling out stadiums and, and every album is millions and millions of dollars and your back catalog is super valuable. Well, we own that. <laughs> like that's yes. that's the trade off. And 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 the key thing about this is implicit in that is lots of people don't make it right and that's why it is valuable and and no one feels bad that the music label owns the back catalog of a singer that you've never heard of right right you think like the taylor swift thing or whatever like obviously her back catalog has been in the news and you know she's re-recording her masters and all this sorts of thing and it's very easy to to take her side of it be like yeah she should own she should own her back catalog it's like well what about the 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 other Taylor Swift that you never heard of mm. who also got money to get started and then her back catalog is is worthless right right and and it does just put this um this decision of these organizations to push out these writers in a completely different light it's like a VC i mean it's 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 like this is typical portfolio theory right it's like a vc deciding to let a writer get or, or let a let a company get to the top of its game and then for whatever reason like okay we're not we're not okay with this anymore we're going to push it out without getting any more returns and like you're really damaging your underlying economics by taking this approach 
Well, the thing that's interesting is if you look at the the top list on Substack for politics, mm. the, the the number one is this letters from an American, which is you know I, I've read a couple issues. It seems to be pretty mainstream Democrat sort of point of view. You know, mm. I think very pro Biden administration. You know. Mm-hmm. Like nothing, it's not it. It would fit in, I think, with a lot of sort of uh, meteorizations. To be honest, but I see. It's, it's someone that posts. Every, uh, Heather Cox Richardson, she's a professor. She posts every day. It's very consistent. Like mm. and it's it's hugely popular. I think it's the mm. the highest grocer on Substack total. I see. But the next six are the Dispatch, which is people got pushed out of National Review for being anti-Trump. Uh, Bulwark, which is the former Weekly Standard crew, which is also anti-Trump. You have Matt Tybee, Glenn Greenwald, and Andrew Sullivan, who are all like, I mean, Andrew Sullivan is is political position is kind of weird, but but especially Greenwald and Tybee are like old school leftists that are mm-hmm. like more worried about like class and are super anti the sort of like social justice and and, and you know they would say anti woke sort of movement. Mm-hmm. And then there's Matthew Iglesias, who's you know kind of he's a <laughs> he's Matthew Iglesias, mm-hmm. but it's interesting where all those that so that middle selection are folks that are out of step with what where you would think they would be, right? Where there's the conservative blogosphere or publications, like there's a whole universe of them. But if you're not, if you're anti-Trump, you're kicked out. They don't want anything to do with you, right? And if you're anti-woke sort of in the mainstream media, well, more and more difficult to sort of get a job. And what's fascinating, it's I just find it fascinating that those are the two camps that are kind of mm. on this leaderboard, right? And it goes to show that, to your point, it, it, Substack is a market maker. There is a market for these points of view. And if th- that market is not satisfied with either the conservative sphere or sort of like the liberal sphere, they're going to go find it somewhere else. It's so interesting because you, you said you describe you started off describing Substack and you you used the term I don't want it to be normative. Um, it just is, and like th- that was in describing the fact that these writers are leaving and they're going somewhere else. But when viewed through the frame of of what you just said, that these guys represent controversial opinions inside their traditional camp, I think there is a normative view here of Substack, and it's one that. I am really glad it exists. I'm really glad these people don't go, don't have to end up off in the wilderness. That, and, and, and it's a shame that it's got to this, but like one of the things that I've always respected about the United States is it's always, if not courted, then tolerated kind of controversial opinions on lots of topics. And it feels like on both sides of the spectrum, for whatever reason, the, the openness to that is is really starting to close off. Yeah, because it's important to remember that the controversial opinions are often like black people shouldn't be beaten or like interracial marriage is OK or like mm. like being gay is not a crime. Like that's that's the thing, because people hear you say that or court controversial opinions and they jump to this 2021 framing where about what is controversial and what right. isn't. And they forget about the fact that, yeah, everyone at every moment in history thinks they have it right and figured right. out and everyone before them was bad. But actually, totally. the way we get to good places is by having controversial opinions that yes. are right and true. I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. And it's it's a shame that the traditional the, the traditional outlets for those controversial opinions seem to be narrowing the extent to which things are acceptable because of the pressures that are being put on them. And I am so glad that there is an outlet that has emerged at around the same time to enable those to exist. And 
you know what? It's it's not just that they're existing. They're almost being rewarded more handsomely for having those controversial opinions and pushing the boundaries. It's great. And it's going to be an interesting sort of challenge for Substack going forward, because if you if you think through the implications of what we're saying, by definition, the biggest publications on Substack are going to be counter to the dominant sort of mm. ide- ideology, maybe is a, yeah. is a way to put it. And, and again, that's why I think this this leaderboard is so fascinating because it's not just the it, it's easy to sit here and say it's one side or the other, right? But it's both mm. sides, right? Mm. The right's flushing out their heretics and the left's flushing out their heretics, and they're stuck here together on this leaderboard. It, it's amazing. It is amazing. And taking a step even further back, the fact that there are heretics and there are the fact that um people aren't comfortable having other people say things that they're uncomfortable with short of it being completely outlandish like uh like like obviously i do think there there ultimately should be some limits and some cultural norms but the extent to which that's being crushed down on things that i don't think it should be and uh, clearly lots of other subscribers to these substack newsletters agree this is helpful for me again framing it in 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 view of another comparison of a system, the only way that you crushing all your dissent, like the place where that would work and comparing it again with China, like you, for that approach to work where someone is saying something that you find so unreasonable that you don't think that they should be able to say it anymore. The only way that system works holistically is when they say that and then they end up, there's either the threat or they they end up getting locked up in jail. And uh, like that's not a world in which I want to live in. Like that's part of the reason why I've railed so heavily against China. And it was sad for me to see the United States from a cultural perspective kind of move in this direction where a whole bunch of these organizations were starting to police thought. It just didn't feel right. And again, getting into it from a normative perspective, it's, it's, I'm really happy to see something like this emerge such that these people with these crazy, wild, dangerous ideas have a, have a place to go and are reaching an audience and are being successful. Wait, I think this is a reason, though, I've been more relaxed about this than you. And the reason is that I think the forces that are driving towards ideological conformity in these publications, I think those are the same forces that are creating these opportunities for the heretics. Mm. It's, the, it's the same thing. It's the internet. The, the internet is driving any subscription-based publication to a narrowing of point of view because you have to deliver something your customers want. And guess what? Customers of the New York Times don't want to see a Republican senator writing about sending in the military. No one wants that, right? Like there's, and so you all the incentives are lining up in a particular direction where you 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 giving people what they, I mean the whole the whole problem the whole issue with like the filter bubbles and all that sort of thing mm. is that people actually don't want to see the other side. They mm. want to be told. They want confirmation bias. They like Facebook is a confirmation mm. bias machine. Mm. Twitter is a confirmation bias machine. People want to be told what they want to hear, mm. and. And and so it's leading to this to the situation, and people are like freaking out, like, oh my god, the New York Times is is like is like shoving people out the door, or New York Magazine is shoving people out the door. But th- what's causing that that ideological sort of conformity is also enabling Substack is, and maybe it's because I I was writing Shortakery all along, and mm-hmm. so I've always been 
you know, very viscerally aware of the opportunities of the internet to go out there and mm. make you, and say what you want to say. Mm. And, and and I think that's made me much more chill about the whole thing because hey, this is what's going to happen. Like the internet is going to drive everything to on an if you look at it on an individual basis, it's going to get very narrow, mm. right? But systematically, there's going to be a million narrowing. Like it, this is the whole mm. niche thing, right? Yeah. The, 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 whereas it used to be. The, the way you got scale in the real world was was you would be like you have geographic scale. You, mm. you have to cover everything, all those sorts of things. And the internet breaks that all up, right? But the internet also gives you access to the entire world. So, yeah, yeah maybe every particular publication or every particular author is very narrow. But you have access to every author in the world, so it, yes. it kind of it, it's just it's an inversion of the market, and it's okay. It's okay. Like it, it, all this stuff works together. This is very clarifying for me because if you think about it as a spectrum, that and maybe I was conflating two things. If you think about it as a spectrum, I think I was worried about two things. One is that there were points of view that were going to just get completely carved off because they were not okay. And I think what you just said, like, 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 if you think about it, 360, everything north of 280 is just going to get dropped into the ocean and nobody sees it anymore. And and the idea that you get maybe you don't get your uh, you don't get your uh, space on on whatever magazine it might be, but there's a place for you to go. Yeah, why and does Andrew this- Sullivan have a right to New York Magazine? If New York Magazine doesn't want him, fine, kick him out. Right, yeah. right. Like it, it, people get so they get stuck in this narrow point of view, and, and the reality is, and, and again. Like New York Magazine can make the choices they want to make. They're they're a free publication, mm-hmm. and that's fine because what's driving them to overvalue, you could argue from the outside, ideological conformity over like money making capability. And you know, mm-hmm. normally magazines trying to do subscriptions too. Maybe they feel like sure, Sullivan drives a lot, but he also drives away a lot. Right? Mm-hmm. It's a totally reasonable point yeah. of view for them to have a decision for them to make, and it's okay. Because Sullivan go set up his own site. That's fine. Right. And the fact that there it's is like the, now- it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a perfect manifestation of competition will take care of it. Right. Yes. I, I totally agree. And I think maybe I was still anchored. My concern around this was still anchored in the past where there wasn't an easy outlet for them to go. And now that it is, I think we'll see a thousand flowers bloom. There will be a richness across the spectrum that previously was lacking. I think- my concern still remains, though, that as more and more of these incredible niches emerge, people spend more of their time in them without seeing the opposite point of view. And uh, I, I do think there is value in getting the, 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 the breadth, like not just spending all your time at 89 degrees on the compass, but actually seeing opposing points of view and being open to it. But I feel like well, no, this it, is- It's a real thing. Like, the, the re- it, it was very societally valuable- to have everyone reading the same news sources, yeah. right? The fact that that the New York Times would publish something and then the three yes. broadcast networks would carry it and then all the local papers would do it the next day. Like it, you had an I you had a information uh what's the word I'm looking for? An, an information the aperture was wide open. Like it was there was more breadth. No, there's less breadth. But everyone conformity. Everyone believed the same facts, right? And it is very easy to see how valuable and interesting that is, right? Mm. And it leads to a more cohesive society without question. Yep. At the same time, 
it wasn't so great if you didn't fit in the conformed right. areas, yep. right? Yep. If you were, if you were for for many, many years an African American, or if you were gay, or you were, or if you if you were an atheist, right? If you were all these sorts of categories that weren't didn't fit mm. in the mold, well, it really sucked. Mm. And so there's a normative argument where this is a good thing where more is out there, but the bigger thing is it's just a thing. It's a reality and. We absolutely need to figure out in the long run, how do we coexist as a society? Mm -hmm. How Mm -hmm. do we manage in a world where you just see the world in a fundamentally different way than I do? You have a different view of facts than I do. And how do we figure that out? How do we manage? I'm not, I don't know. I don't completely know the answer to it, but there is something about the internet too, where and this is sort of like an argument that uh, uh, Bruno Maceas has made in his book, um, uh, he has a new book, a book called History Has Begun. It's it's very interesting. And one of his mm-hmm. arguments is that what is actually brilliant about the U.S. is they have all these what see, you look online. It's like these crazy conflagrations and this fight. And like, how can we ever coexist together? And then you're in the real world. And actually, none of it actually really matters. Mm. Right. Like like we're in, we're all stirred up in a tempest about all this stuff that's going on. And and, and you know, the, the, yeah. would you see that the new political and story we, and, the, and then we drive to get XYZ. our coffee. And then we go get our coffee and we go to the kids sports game. And like, <laughs> like we've created this world of conflict uh, that is completely separate from the real world. Mostly. Right? Mostly. mostly. Uh, one of his, one of his points that the pandemic like showed what happens when it actually cuts through to the real world. Yeah, then you have big problems, right. but, but it, 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 it's interesting. I'm not, I don't know that he's right, but it is an encouraging point of view that does make some degree of sense. Right. Where mm. I just said a little bit ago, the same forces driving towards ideological conformity within publications are the exact same forces that are actually providing more opportunities for. Mm, and mm. so it's, I'm much more chill about it. I do suspect there's a similar thing to the same forces driving to the splintering of society are also the same forces that kind of make it not that big of a deal. It's just kind of like, it's just in the air. It's just the way, the way things are. I haven't quite figured that part out, but there is like anytime you see something happening and all you can see is the downside of it, there's probably another angle to it, right? All pluses have their negatives, all advantages have their disadvantages, and maybe we just haven't quite figured that out yet. I mean, like this is the same thing. Like if it hadn't been for the you quitting your job and feeling like you had to make this work and oh shit, like that oh shit feeling. Like that was the that was the necessary impetus for you to create something that's great that like ev- lots of lots of people who are listening to this absolutely love and I take your point that yes in the same way that there's there's this push from the conformity that's creating that's creating a push um, for these writers to go find a new way of doing things there's some the the splintering is going to have some positive effect and you're right like m- maybe. Um, it's harder to say, and maybe it hasn't emerged yet. But again, well, well, well here's let me make one more point. Right, uh, you can see, like China is leaning into uh, the conformity angle. Yes, right. Yes, this I, is where and, I was going to. And I've said this again and again, but you are not going to out China, China. Right, uh-huh. they they are down to the ISP level, controlling yep. what you see online. It's, everything's propaganda. It's all towards a particular point of view. Like there, the more and more companies, you know, the whole like party thing in the company, and you have to read Xi's writings and like all. Mm. It's it's hardcore, right? And you're not going to outdo that. So the, the the best possible response is to go in the 
exact opposite direction, mm. right? You don't want to do a half China. Yeah. And because you you end up limiting the innovation and the new ideas and the new approaches that are the only way to counter that, right? Because what's the weakness of top-down conformity? It's you snuff out the new ideas. You snuff out the, the the innovation. You snuff out the new way of doing things. You snuff out the sort of, you know, the entrepreneurship of of ideas and and, mm-hmm. and and the solution to that is you lean into that stuff. You go the opposite direction. And my concern about you know the, to the extent I am concerned, like I said, I'm more chill than you, more chill than, than other folks. I am concerned we end up with this sort of half-assed uh, mm. regime where you know you you kind of like there, there's a little bit you know, good stuff gets snuffed out, but you you mm-hmm. can never actually stop the bad stuff because yeah. we don't have it. We don't have it in us to do it. We're right. not going to regulate on an ISP level. And then you We're get not going to throw people in jail. For, then you get the worst of both worlds. Exactly. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. It's it's ha- having that. It's 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 almost like my muse having that extreme version of playing these things out and comparing it. And I've I've chided you in the past about going to the China card. I'm like, okay, yeah. like, you know, like, don't jump straight to China. But in this particular case, if you think about wanting to limit speech, you right. that's where you end up because it's only possible if you go to the ISP level, right? The nature of the internet is you have to get to the physical. That's the point mm. about virtualism, right? This idea that everything's just online. Well, the way you cut stuff off from online is you get to the physical layer. Right. And 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 so if you think through if you actually do want to control what's online, you have to go to the physical layer, which means you have to go to the China example. Not totally. I mean, and here's the thing, there are definite downsides to people living in their alternative worlds with alternative facts and facts that I think are crazy. Yeah, but yeah, like, to be clear, I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm just saying it's no, a thing, right? It's a thing. But like give, given where we are and given you kind of only get to play at the systematic level would I rather live in that world or would I rather live in the world where, yeah, there's a, there's a set of, uh, there's a narrative with a completely accepted set of facts. And if you don't like the facts, things don't end up very well with, for you. Would I like, would I prefer to live in that world? I, 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 I know which one I would take all day long, every day of the year. No, that's the thing. Like the 50s, 60s, 70s era of broadly agreed upon facts, that's impossible. Like the internet drives to extremes. So there's only like, that's my point about it actually is useful to go to the China model. You're either going China model or you're going like free for all. Like there, mm-hmm. there's no more middle ground. And and you see this in, in business space or business, the internet where it drives to the extremes. It applies to this just as much as anything else. By the way, I do have one more thing to, to oh, go for it. That, that I've gotten more relaxed about. Oh, so ben, Ben's the, chilling out in his old age. I am. I am. So one of the things I wrote an article last year about like uh, Twitter and like the WHO and they were going to start, you know, limiting mm. code misinformation. And you like say, yep. well, the WHO had this tweet saying, you know, yep. it's not human to human. Like, uh, you know, this is such a terrible Lost idea. Blah, blah, blah. Right, right. I've gotten a lot more chill about the social networks moderation, to be honest. And the reason is that if you go back and it's like, oh, look at how valuable the social networks were at the beginning of the pandemic. You got so much good information there. And like the Seattle flu study guy raised the alarm, right, mm. via Twitter because they were running this study that the FDA didn't allow it. But they were, but social media made it possible to the world. It's all true. Absolutely true. But I went back and I was thinking about it. At the time, I actually wrote this article. And 
it was actually, I think it was, I had to pat myself on the back. I think it was actually even better than I appreciated at the time, which is you have to look at the value of information and misinformation and all those sorts of things and, and the value of freedom. It changes over time. And what's interesting is before March 11th, basically, which is the day where everyone sort of woke up, mm-hmm. that was the day that the NBA suspended play, Tom Hanks got mm-hmm. it, and then Trump banned travel. Before then, there was social media was super valuable in uncovering information about this that the media really mm-hmm. wasn't covering. And no, it, you like people like me in Asia knew about it. But if you were in the US, like it was just a way to like find out what was mm-hmm. actually going on. Mm-hmm. Super, super valuable. After March 11th, social media became garbage. Actually, the media mostly became garbage too. Misinformation everywhere. And you didn't know what was true, what was not true. Even your formerly trusted sources were starting to get confused. Mm-hmm. I made some mistakes about this. And and you realize that, you know, if fa- it doesn't matter if Facebook and Twitter are snuffing out seemingly valuable information with their by overly censorious, because you're not going to find it anyway, because there's so much garbage in the system. Right. And and you think about that, like a social media top down, heavy handed sort of moderation is always going to be sort of after the fact. Right. Mm. If there's an emerging piece of information, that's not even in their systems. That's right. It's going to run. Right. And so actually, I got a lot more relaxed about. Facebook and YouTube and, and Twitter doing this sort of heavy hand in moderation and why are you relying on the WHO? The WHO is reliable. Well, honestly, by the time they invoke that policy, it's already too the late. good information is totally drowned, right? It's already yeah. gone. So who cares, right? But the fact that they're user generated and the fact that they are free is actually, they still remain channels for information to emerge when that emergence is actually valuable. Yeah. I mean, and even it's the Streisand effect to a certain extent, even by the fact that they're limiting information or or labeling it, that in itself becomes a story as well, which brings attention to it. I get get people, I just think it's, there's so many moving parts of stuff. Like in principle, yes, it's a big problem that, you know, Facebook is limiting articles about the WHO because of their label misinformation, according to information they got from the WHO, right? Like there's, there's, there's a problem there, right? But by the time they get to that point, one, th- like there's so much, mis- there, like mm. it's dishonest to not say there's not just massive gargantuan mm. piles of misinformation because you think about it, like the whole reason why social media has so much information is because it's your marginal cost, right? It's mm-hmm. like it, you can spread it around for free. It also means you can produce it for free. And what costs more to produce? Genuine information or misinformation? Misinformation uh, is 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 cheap. It's cost right. zero. You can just pump yeah. it out. Whereas genuine to actually get facts, yep. that's right. And so it it follows that it, it was kind of this kind of like the um the Mac Windows virus thing, right? Like Mac, people in Mac usually say, "Oh, we never get any viruses." Like you, you know, when you were uh, uh, on on the message boards as a youth. Yeah, and I remember. Look at Windows with all the viruses. Yeah, yeah. It's like well. When 95% or 98% of the world uses Why, Windows, blah, blah. if you're a hacker, which one are you going to focus on, right? Where, where are you going to actually make money? There's something about that to the information bit as well, where you know the misinformation is going to flow to the topics that are popular, mm-hmm. and, and that's actually a good thing because where we care about emerging information, where we care about controversial points of view is precisely about the stuff that isn't popular, my guess is it's going to be just like Google. When you start to live in a world in which 
there's so much information you it's hard to figure out which one to, like like what to get like the value is going to start to be in figuring out people to trust and like there will be there will be new systems and mechanisms that will emerge to help people solve that and uh I, I doubt it's going to involve censorship as opposed to like the true system or the true solution is going to be you start to get people that you trust um, yep. to like elevate those things. And sometimes they'll get it right and sometimes they, they'll get it wrong. And that's why there's value in having more of them and kind of letting the market figure it out in this sense. Yeah, it's going to be it, it, it is going to be a trust based system where you're going to start trusting like the, the curation function is, yes. is, is really valuable. Curation, right? you, you, exactly. Right. It, it, I trust this person. They pass along this thing. They do whatever. And that that's why it's important for, you know, if if you if this is something that I've, you know, come to appreciate and I screwed this up some last year. Like I have to be very careful about what I pass along because hmm. part of this model, the subscription model, is people are literally paying me money because they care what I have to say. And yep. that comes with a great deal of responsibility. And this is something where this is another reason where Substack is not good or bad. It's just a thing. And it is a thing worth being aware of that there's going to be, you know, people that gather a following and use that for bad ends. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's that's going to be a feature of the Internet. It's never been yes. easier to create a cult than today. Right. And the cult of the individual in particular. And that's something that, you know, is going to be a reality. Uh, we're going to have to figure out how to deal with it. But again, all this stuff, we, there, there's no going back. Like we've crossed mm. the Rubicon. Like we, yep. we've quit our job, right? We, we're going to have to make it work or not. Mm. There is no not. We're just going to have to make it work. Yeah, totally. Because th- yeah, uh, there. I guess there is some hypothetical alternative, but as we've both stated, it's not one that we really want to live in anyway. Yeah, no, there is. You can only go in one direction. And, and yep. so- Anyhow, I'm I'm chill. I'm relaxed. Eh. Uh, well, again, if if you if 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 people have got too much chill out of this podcast, they could always go back to the last one and hear me rail about Rupert Murdoch. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I uh, well, you, oh, you're, you're, you're. I think last week's or last month's bat signal left with you even more upset. Uh, hopefully, this week's left left you you know yeah. a little more relaxed and go for some. It is true. Sounds like a plan. All right. Uh, good to talk to you, and I will look. Fo- I look forward to the next bat signal. Sounds like a plan. Have a good one, Ben. Uh, yep. Bye bye. See. You.